When was the first time you thought about the military? I think back to when I was a kid. How many hillsides or boulders we made into forts to fight battles against each other. Who knows how many G.I. Joes are buried in my old backyards. Some of you might have done the same, or worn out your Top Gun VHS dreaming of flying, or maybe dreamt of being in a submarine. Do kids even do that? I don't know. Anyway, at some point, if I'm to believe a lot of the folks that I talked to, you caught a Be All You Can Be commercial, or another one where a Marine inexplicably fights a dragon and thought, could I do that? If you thought about it long enough, you eventually came to the question of if you'd be okay going to war if it came to that. The funny thing is that in those moments, you probably didn't even consider the myriad risks that many of the armed forces face in training activities that they perform routinely, like falling out of airplanes, operating heavy and complex machinery, and handling and shooting weapons that have lethal effects. At times, they're asked to do these things under great stress and with little rest. In this episode, you'll hear the harrowing story of when all those risks are realized and things unexpectedly go wrong all at once, and the extraordinary response of soldiers in a terrible situation. This is the story of Ezra Mays, who lost his leg when the tank he was in lost a critical function and it crashed down a hillside to an abrupt halt. How he and his crew took care of each other in the frightening moments after, not knowing if anyone would be able to find them, and how, among all the systems that come in probably the most advanced tank in the world, his personal phone saved them. Welcome to No Shit, There I Was, a podcast committed to telling the stories you may never otherwise hear. So settle in, kick back, and take it all in. Hello, I'm your host, Joey Snowden. Before the episode gets started, I just want to say a couple of things. First is that, like many industries, the military can have an exclusive lingo, which will sometimes be used in this episode. I help with context and some explanation where they're needed to understand the story. The second is that Ezra does a great job of explaining his injuries sustained during the accident. So consider yourself warned if that visualization might make you uneasy. So I'm here with specialist Ezra Mays, an extremely impressive guy with an even more incredible story. And I know by the end of this interview, you'll agree. So Ezra, go ahead and introduce yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, again, you got it already. I'm specialist Ezra Mays. I'm 21 years old. I was born in Denver, Colorado, grew up in New Mexico, uh, I was a pretty normal kid. I planned on going to college, didn't really have the grades for it, and I always wanted to serve, and things just kind of fell in the right place at the right time, and joined in as a, M, as a 19 kilo M1 armor crewman and served three years in the military. Well, served two years before my accident, and uh, it's been about a year since that injury happened. Okay, awesome. So you already talked about it a little bit. So why the army, man? You know, you you said <laughs> you always wanted to do it. What was it? What what drew you to it? So a little piece about me. I didn't grow up really without a father figure in my life for you know years until I was about ten years old. But when I was younger, my great grandfather was in the picture, and he served in the army, World War II era. Actually, he was out of Fort Hood where I was stationed in Texas, which was absolutely crazy to me when I joined. We had no idea until I joined. It was, it was one of those things. Just some things fell in the right place at the right time. I had a buddy that was getting ready to join. And he got me to go talk to the army recruiters and, you know, you always hear those horror stories, but I really lucked out. I had some amazing, amazing NCOs as recruiters and I'm still in contact with them to these days. But I looked around a little bit. I took my ASVAB, started to talk some of the branches. Um, I, I wasn't necessarily just set on the army. I wanted to do something that felt fulfilling. You know, I wanted to feel like if I'm going to go out and do this, I'm going to do it the right way and I'm going to have some stories to tell. So I think I, I think it's fair to say that I got that at this point. But <laughs> uh, Most certainly. 
Right. So what did your, what did you find out that your great grandfather did? He was, so he was infantry. He was a machine gunner from what I knew. So, I mean, in his later stages of his career after the war, he ended up working as pretty much like finance. And uh, I think he reached tech sergeant before he got, before he got out. But when he was overseas, he served as a machine gunner. You know, it's still one of those things. I took a lot of pride in that and grew up from a very young age, respecting veterans and whatnot. No, definitely. That's, I think it's a pretty important part of everybody's story as far as, you know, if they had somebody in their family and they, you know, they saw that and as part of their lives and they said, you know, I kind of want to be a part of that. I, I, I certainly have that sentiment. So oh, I agree completely. You know, it's one of those things you grow up with that idol, right? And that was always the one. And so I, I remember even in kindergarten, we had to do, it was a career day thing and we were signing up for things that we wanted to do. And I remember it was either football player and then there was soldier on there too, were the two on my list. I was no good at football. So it's <laughs> kind of funny how this turned out. <laughs> no, I hear you. I hear you there. I was an officer in the army, so I don't have the enlisting experience. Yeah, right. And that is a, it's a unique experience for the folks that go through it. And the, and, and the reality is a majority of the people in the army go through it. So what was your enlisting experience like? You know, mm-hmm. you, you sign up with a recruiter, you got a report in and then boom. Great. Yeah, it was quick. Um, so I joined, I signed the paperwork the day I turned 18 or like the day after. I took my ASVAB back when I was 17 and we were kind of just knocking out some of the prelim- uh, preliminary stuff. And you know, I shipped out that August after I graduated. As far as going to basic, you know, what was that experience like for you? Oh, it was rough. I caught pneumonia my uh, first week of red phase. Yikes. And because I'm stubborn and I did not want to get recycled, I just fought through it until about midway through white phase. <laughs> and, uh, if I finally got to that point, we were doing push-ups one day, and you know I was by far the worst performing in the platoon. I started coughing up blood by like push-up number twenty, and that's when they're like, "All right, yeah, you're going to the sick call. I don't want to hear about it." And you know, miraculously, I got better really quickly, and I managed to pass it. And by the end of it, I was, you know, I felt a lot closer with the guys for it. I'm really glad I got to stick through it. It, it was interesting. The best description I've ever heard of basic is it's the best time you never want to have again. <laughs> I've definitely heard similar things, and uh, yeah, that that seems accurate. So you come out of basic, which is basically just indoctrination in the army and basic soldiering skills, and then you go into AIT, which is advanced individual training, where you learn more of the job that you're going to do in the army. Yeah, correct. It's a uh, just nine week basic, and then you just followed immediately up after a four day weekend with your AIT portion. But it's basically four months of basic training. So, but it's meant for those rapid deploy guys. So, you know, infantry, tanks, cav scouts, anyone like that, that during wartime needs to be able to get trained and sent out really quickly. They have that shortened version, but it's, you know, much more intense and much more, um, it's a lot more compact. So it was, it was really a blur, you know, looking back at it, those, those four months flew by. It felt like I joined and next thing you know, I was at Fort Hood and you know, I don't think I would have had it any other way. I was towards the time of my accident, I actually had a West Point packet in and I was getting ready to move over to the other side. And I was starting to kind of become more serious about taking this as a career. When I joined, my initial plan was really, you know, do three years, get out, do some school and then reconsider about coming back in. But at the end of the day, I wanted to get a solid education and I wanted to serve. And when the West Point option came up, I was kind of like too good to pass up. So I really enjoyed the enlisted side. I'm sure from what you've seen on your end of it, it's a lot more, I want to say it's more tight knit. You know, you almost feel like, every single person that you work with is like one of your brothers or like you could turn for them to turn to them for anything. And I always feel like with the officers, you guys have to bear a bigger brunt of that stress and that anxiety. And so you almost have to be kind of distanced from us a little bit. Yeah. I mean, the, the little bit I've, I've written about my experience, one of the things that sticks, uh, sticks out, maybe not as much as a platoon leader, because you're, I, I, you know, I had a lot of close relationships with my, with my soldiers as a, mm-hmm. as a platoon leader, but particularly as a company commander, there is a certain loneliness of command and that's certainly the truth. Right. There, there is a, a level of distance that you have to keep. And Oh yeah. And it's, it's hard. I mean, you're, 
you're expected to know these soldiers inside and out, but at the same time, you have to be their you have to be their boss. I guess I would say the hardest part for tanks is so I was on the platoon leader's tank when we had this accident. And it still felt like there was that distance. You know, the guy sat three feet away from me and there was never that click or that connection because he was always, you know, it was never just like he could be personally working on that tank with us. He had to worry about an entire platoon as well. Like, like you said, there's just that distance. It's definitely, it's different, but it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing, you know? Yeah, we had an interesting dynamic too with, I, I would joke a lot with my, my Bradley platoon. So just to explain to folks that are listening, Bradley platoon has four vehicles and then the folks that control those vehicles and then a few squads of infantrymen. A Bradley that's just like a tank except it has a smaller gun and a compartment in the back that accommodates more irritated infantrymen than you ever want to try and fit. I, I had to be probably the worst Bradley platoon leader <laughs> insofar as like I didn't care about you know, being on a Bradley at all, you know, when we were in Iraq, we used them every so often. And I, I, I leaned very hard on my, my section leaders. I had, a, had an NCO who was on my crew and I worked to be effective, you know, as a, as a Bradley commander for that, for that vehicle that I was on. But I leaned on him hard to make sure that everything was good and ready and everything was operating the way it's supposed to, because I, I felt like it was my responsibility to be more focused on the entirety of the platoon not just on that vehicle exactly and again you saw a really different dynamic from that too i mean had i been in combat it would have been different and had i made e5 e6 it would have been different as well so i was the senior specialist of my platoon so my ncos relied really hard on me to kind of you know help coach some of the joes up and help kind of show them show them the ropes more than anything but I, I really enjoyed the enlisted side and I had a couple really good officers above me that helped kind of start steering me towards the direction of doing West Point and uh just God had a different path for me you know definitely right so getting to Fort Hood you went to the best battalion 2-5 Cav in Fort Hood <laughs> Correct, yeah. Lancers <laughs> so uh, it's been so long I can't remember what the hell I have to say for that was there a saying Right. Well, you know, it was kind of funny. So when I showed up there, let's see, I had a Lieutenant Colonel Pinkerton at the time. He was my battalion commander. So the greeting before Colonel Pinkerton was shoot him in the face. Oh, goodness. Yeah, that's, I don't remember that one. Yeah, it was slightly problematic. But anyway, so 2-5 <laughs> has a pretty interesting line of commanders. Robert E. Lee was the 2nd Cavalry Regiment commander, which is oh, the no lineage kidding. of 2-5 Cav. You know, before he defected. And then John Bell Hood, the namesake for Fort Hood, led a company in the same regiment. Uh, the the three corps commander at Fort Hood when I was there was uh, Lieutenant General Funk. Colonel Schofield was at two five, and he he's brigade commander. Yeah, so that's kind of yeah. it kind of runs like that. So General Funk was Colonel Funk, the commander of Iron Horse Brigade when I was a PL. Okay, so it's an interesting lineage. That, that yeah, no kidding. Yeah, they kind of like to keep everybody there. You know, it's it's one of those places that you get sucked into it, and uh, you get to know people, and they end up you end up staying there and just building a career yeah, up there. Yeah, absolutely. So. I, the other part that was funny about what you're saying is, all right, so you only spent a couple of months with 2-5 and then you jumped over to 1-7. Correct, yeah. And the rest of my year and a half or so was spent over there. Were y'all snooty about it? And you were like, oh, we're the only proper cab people here, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> no, uh, we felt like the redheaded stepchildren because okay. we were the first tanks getting introduced back into an all-cab unit. So it was three Bradley troops and then one tank company. Right. So now we're, we're going to tread in some waters that I am completely unfamiliar with right my time in the army was like i got to my first battalion i got to two five and a couple weeks later i was on a plane to kuwait and right and then when i got back 
they had a year back and then they are, you know, during that year, they're getting ready to go back to Iraq. So I am guessing at some point when you were with one seven, you got notified, Hey, y'all are going to Eastern Europe. Yes. So I came in at a really weird time. I literally showed up to the unit right after they got back from Korea. And so it was really up in the air. We didn't know where we were going to deploy. There was all, you know, there's always rumors of, Oh, did you see what's happening in Syria? Did you see what's happening with this? So first brigade was one of the rapid deploy units and it was one of those things for like a year, you know, drop of a hat, we could be the guys going out. So it was always like, you know, talk at the smoke pits and things like that. Like, hey, do you see this? Do you see this? Do you think this is going to happen for us? But uh, once the Eastern Europe thing came out, we got excited for a little bit of change. It was a year and however many months of really intense training. The op tempo at Fort Hood was definitely a little tough to keep up with at times. Then um, when we finally got word for that and they gave us some of the areas we're going to, it was still pretty much just kept mostly in the air because they wanted to see how we reacted when boots hit the ground. And by the time we were starting to board planes and stuff, we had a solid idea where we were going. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's dive into that. You know, So you find out you're going to Eastern Europe. What was your mission? It was it was a joint training mission with a lot of the NATO countries out there. It's called Atlantic Resolve. Right. And what we kind of understood about it at our level, at least, is it's basically just to have a presence out in Europe, just in case that there's anything that does happen in Eastern Europe. And our main goal, the whole point of that early part of the deployment, was to see how fast we could get from onto the planes, back overseas, and ready to fight. The whole goal was just to do it in a couple weeks. So the, once boots hit the ground, it was... You know, we had 24-hour days constantly, and we were working shifts, and it, it was nuts. It was just running as fast as we could for those, those first two weeks until we got everything set. And it, it was it was cool to see. It was definitely like, you know, had we gone to war like this, this is exactly what we would have seen is how we were running it. It was it was interesting. But uh, after that, it kind of slowed down. We got to do a little bit of joint training with uh, some of the Polish forces. We ran some pretty basic things like driver's trainings and gunneries and whatnot. We went to Slovakia. That was going to be our first big joint one that we were going to do. And there was Polish forces. There was Slovakian forces. There was actually a couple Russian people that were like adjudicators almost. It, it was interesting, you know, especially for a guy like me. I'd never left New Mexico hardly. And to see all that was really eye-opening. It was, it was cool. I'm glad we got to do it. Yeah, perfect. So the background on all this is that in late February of, I think it was 14, Russian forces uh, took control of the Supreme Council and strategic sites across all of Crimea. And uh, really what they were trying to do is set the conditions to install a pro-Russian government, which they completely did, and then annex Crimea into the Russian Federation by, like I think it was March. So then in April, the U.S. started rotating units into Eastern Europe to do exactly what Ezra was talking about. But there's so many cool things that happen around the world that the military gets to do that people just have no clue about. So many joint training operations, and they usually schedule so many cool things for you to do in that time. You know, when I was a company commander, we were going to go in Tunisia and... Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we're going to go as a company and, and go cross-train with a Tunisian uh, company and do an airborne operation with them. It's going to be awesome. But unfortunately, they canceled. I think my biggest regret with that was in the moment, you know, it's just you get so sucked into what your job was. So at that point, I was running a lot of the communication stuff for our unit, and I was one of the unit armorers, and I had my job on the tank too. So it was all kind of a blur for me, and there was a lot of really cool opportunities. I feel like had I been a little bit more present of mind, I would have got to enjoy it a lot more. But it was just... Uh, I remember it being a very, very hectic five months. It was it was some of the hardest hours I've pulled since I was in the military. Now, I can certainly understand it with all those jobs because those do take a lot of time. 
think what some people don't realize is, you know, when you're in the military, whether it's the Navy or Marines or Army, you don't just have one job. You know, you have a few different jobs and, you know, you're, you're not just a, a crew member on a tank, but you you might be in charge of a few different things. Oh, yeah. I mean, like you guys have seen it on that side too. It's that it's whatever training you do, all of a sudden that becomes a, an unofficial job for you, you know, simple things. Like I only maybe ever took a couple combo classes while I was in the military, but I took it to heart and, you know, I felt like it was a hole that we needed in our platoon. And so I just learned it. That's how I picked it up. And then all of a sudden I was slotted for it. And then there are some times when they just point and say, hey, you, you're going to do this. And you go, why, yes, I am. But anyway, so real quick, before we kind of get into it, everybody has a funny deployment story. Even though your deployment was a little bit different, shot out of a cannon, tell me a funny deployment story. The Polish military day, like their, I shouldn't say it's their 4th of July, it's more like their Veterans Day celebration, was hands down one of the funniest things I've ever seen a unit do to boost morale. And... So first part of the day, I mean, Poland, Poland gets hot. It, it was probably about 100 degrees, and I was part of the parade for this. You know, we had our tanks out there. They had their tanks. We're standing in formation, and people are dropping like flies from heat cat. It was, it, it was brutal. <laughs> we had the guide on right in front of me fall. Me and my buddy caught him, and he dragged him off to the back, and someone else jumped on the flag, and it was rough. And then, of course, all the Poles are looking at us like, what's going on? <laughs> like, why are these guys falling out of formation? <laughs> but – uh after that, after all that, and we just got to kind of enjoy, like enjoy the day, you know, go see the exhibits. They had live music. They had dancing. They had cars out there doing a drift show. It was it was just the weirdest amalgamation. But the funny one, they pulled some of their funds from, I can't remember what account they pulled it, but they gave all of the soldiers free beer tickets. And <laughs> as I'm sure you can kind of guess how that turned out. It turned out only the best way. It really only turned out the best way. Exactly. It turned out that, you know, you're getting 10 free beers instead. <laughs> to say it got out of hand wouldn't be right because nothing bad happened. But, you know, there's I remember one of my buddies was he was dancing with I can't even remember. She was like a grandmother to one of the friends that we had there that worked on post. And, you know, he's out there like dancing and spinning her around and stuff. And it's like, oh, my goodness, what's going on here? It, it was just it was it was ridiculous, especially because at that point we hadn't had any interaction with them. We'd been there. We got our tanks and stuff ready and we hadn't really had much chance to meet them. The guys, the base that we were on with the rest of the Polish soldiers. And then all of a sudden it was like we were the best of friends. It, it was the funniest thing to watch happen live. And I, I was I was out of there by like six o'clock. But everybody else stayed till about midnight. You're building four relations is what was happening. Exactly right. Yeah, it's it. It's one of those memories that I just was like the free beer tickets. It's genius. That's how you brought two countries together. <laughs> you just started handing out free beer all over the place. It was hilarious. I loved it. You know what? I think a lot of people would be surprised. Maybe not, but I think a lot of people would be very surprised by how much nation relationship building is done over copious amounts of alcohol. Oh yeah, it, you know it's it's one of those things that people always talk about badly in the military, but that is probably where I've made some of my closest friends in the military and made friends even overseas that I'm still in contact. Is you know we'd get off of work and we'd go have a beer and like a pizza. It's yeah, just the, it was the norm for us. You know that's that's great. That is a, that is an excellent story, and I appreciate you sharing <laughs> it. Of course, yeah. So tell me about your crew. So our driver was a. PFC at the time, and my gunner, she was, I'm pretty sure she was one of the first female gunners in the military for a tank, on, and she was an E5 at the time. Which is completely badass. Oh yeah, no, she's crazy. Tough woman. She's also the type that's like into jujitsu, and she'll beat you up in combatives too at the same time. She's an amazing, amazing person. Awesome. Let's dive into it. So, a year ago, let's just start with that night, that fateful night. What were y'all out there doing? So, the initial part of the deployment... 
out to Poland was, again, the rapid deploy, get out, qualify in the tanks again, and then this was just going to be a kind of week-long, shot-in-the-dark thing. We were going to get to do this big joint training exercise. We got It was basically, we just got to go out there for a week and show off and got to see what they had. There was special forces units from those guys. There was sniper cells. We got to see all kinds of crazy weaponry and whatnot. It was probably the coolest week of the deployment up to that point. And then we were going to do a two-day driver's training and then uh, live fire at the end of it. And our tank went out there, and we were kind of starting to notice some freak things going on with it. But again, I can't go too much into it. That one's still investigation. But um, I think that's where a lot of the issues came from, was just lack of communication for some of our issues. Like, you know, it's like if you're Bradley and all of a sudden your turret shut down. We were out there for 10 minutes, and our, our turret started doing crazy things to us. It's like, okay, this is going to be one of the weirdest live fires I've ever seen. But we got most of the stuff working again. And, uh, you know, up to that point, it, it was just normal hectic field problem of long hours and just trying to figure out what happened. But uh, that the morning of the second day, we had gone to bed. Our PL was out getting an op order, and we parked the tank. At, we want to guess at like 3 a.m. Right. One thing I'd kind of like to point out is it's not easy to just to stop everything and go get your tank looked at if you feel something funny happening with it. Uh, usually it takes a lot of time. It, it stops a lot of operations from happening. And there's a lot of pressure to make sure that things continue to run smoothly. Unless you're completely broken down, you keep going. So I guess you're probably in some sort of rest cycle. Correct. It was, uh, we were at an index at that point, so we were no longer training. So we were all allowed to bed down because the next day, I think we had another full 24 hours planned ahead of us. Cool. So y'all are just getting some rack. So you lay down or put your head down. I don't even know. Like, what, what is it even like to sleep on a tank? It's tight. It's, uh, that is like the standard with us is... We don't take cots to the field if you are on tanks. You live on that tank for however many days you're out there. So, I mean, if you're in an NTC for two, three weeks, you live on that tank for two, three weeks. And, I mean, there's been times I don't get off of a tank for days on end. It was like, it was, it's rough, but you learn to live it. I get that. I mean, I get the, the theory of that. It's just, uh, there was a few pretty bad incidents with uh, cots around vehicles and whatnot. I think um, you probably remember the story of the, the guy, he was a captain at Fort Bliss that, uh, he got ran over because he didn't have his cot marked out. Yeah, there are some people that have definitely gotten crushed. Yeah, I think that's kind of their idea with it. And normally in the field, in a situation like this, you pull out your sleeping bags, you lay on top of the tank, and you know you actually just sleep on it. But this was, you know, we'd probably been already at it for about 36 hours, and we didn't even have the time or energy to do that. So we just put our heads down where they were in our positions, yeah. which is... Again, it's like a very tight closet. I mean, I sit not even three feet away from my gunner. We have a giant gun in between us, and our driver's separate down in his crew compartment in the right. bottom half of the tank. But yeah, we just put our heads down where they were just to maybe get a couple hours. That's all we expected. Maybe it was to get about two before the next exercise. So you, obviously tired, you've been up for 36 hours, you're just like, okay, I'm just going to lay my head down, get some rack, try to close my eyes for a little bit, and then... Boom. Wake up and the tank's moving. Yeah. Which is, you know, you don't expect to be moving. It's quite a surprise. So what do you do? Right. Walk me through that. And That's got to be like an oh shit moment. Again, I, I'm i definitely the type that I, I don't sleep well as it is. And so when somebody disturbs that, I get really grumpy. <laughs> and so I threw on the helmet and start cursing at the driver. Like, hey, man, put the brake on. It's not funny. And that's when he told me like, hey, it's not me. And that's when it got serious. So I just kind of. Sergeant Crump and I kind of looked at each other and realized what was going on. She started calling up for help to the rest of the crews to let them know what was going on. I started trying to walk in through emergency braking procedures, which is, you know, try to set your parking brake, try to use your service brake, try to start the tank, try to turn turn it, anything you can. And we weren't getting any response from any of it. And uh, 
So it finally got to that point when he, he's like, I've done all of it. I can't do anything else. It's like, all right, hold on. It's about all we can do now. By that point, we'd picked up quite a bit of speed, and we were coming up to a tree line. I poked my head out to look at it. That's when I just told him, hold on. It's about all we can do is just hope to stop on a tree. We kept picking up speed down this hill. We want to say, I don't want to say it was a quarter mile. That's probably an overestimate. It was a long hill. It just I remember the crash taking a lot. I've been in car crashes when I was younger and whatnot, and I remember this taking a long time. It was, you know, we'd hit a tree, slow down to a near stop, pick up speed again, get a little bit faster, hit another tree, and it just kept going and going and going and going. And by the bottom, we were guessing, I don't even want to put a number on it. It, it was fast. It was faster than I've ever been in a tank. It, it was quick. Then in an instant, it hit, and that's when, it, it's not like, you know, in the movies when, you know, you knock out and you slowly wake back up. It was the hit, and then instantly we were back in the moment, knew what was going on. And driver's screaming, making sure, like, we're okay up there. He just said his back really hurt from his injury. And then my gunner had gotten thrown from where she was sitting down, kind of wedged by the gun. So she hit her face on a screen. She busted up her teeth were bad, broke some other things. And her thigh was bleeding really bad. And that's what I immediately remember noticing was seeing all that blood and smelling the electronics and whatnot. That was, like, the stuff that instantly hit me of, like, okay, this is serious. I knew I had broken the leg. I couldn't see it, though. So I didn't know how bad it was. I just I knew it hurt really bad, but I didn't notice anything else. So during my wreck, I actually broke my left leg, my shoulder, and my pelvis in this all too, other than the leg. I just I just knew that I broke the right leg. That was about all I had mentally aware at that time. I just was thinking like I got to get a tourniquet for her because she's wedged and can't move. Right. So you one of your legs is is crushed in some way. Your other leg is is what you know that that one's broken. No, I don't know that that one's okay. broken. I actually end up hopping around on that left leg later on, but I just, I broke one. I broke my ankle during that. I just it's again when that adrenaline's pumping, you don't really notice the little ones. Yeah, but I can't see my leg. It's kind of cut up in the gearing of. It, it's really hard to explain without this, but I where the bottom part of the tank and the top part of the tank meet and kind of match up so they can spin on each other yep. my leg got caught up in that when the turret came sliding forward and uh so i just kind of started pushing and pulling on it to unwedge it because i knew it was broken it hurt but it wasn't bad enough that i couldn't move and get out of there but I'm, i guess my adrenaline was pumping really hard because when i finally dislodged it that's when i noticed that it was gone that's when i was like all right i guess i need two tourniquets now <laughs> this is a little bit more serious so that's your first thought you you look <laughs> down you're like Oh wait, the bottom part of my leg's not attached. Well, it looks like I need two tourniquets. Yeah, it's like, well, that's when she looked at me and was like, "Oh, never mind, you're the priority." <laughs> it was, it was definitely that moment of like panic. You know, if you, I don't know if you've ever broken a bone, but when that feeling of when you look at it, and you're like, "Oh, that's not right." That's that, that's what kind of set in. It was the, it hurt like crazy, but it wasn't. It was a lot more of the, "Oh, that's not, that's not how that's supposed to look. That's not right." Amazingly enough, I've I've never broken a bone like that. Lucky. <laughs> uh, no, I I am lucky. I sprained my my ankle really bad once. Um, I was playing high school football and I uh yeah. and I actually jumped I jumped up on one leg and I ran off the field on one leg instead of just laying there. And then my coaches got onto me later. <laughs> it's totally not the same. <laughs> yeah, imagine like that. You know that feeling like instantly you know it's wrong you know i mean I've, yeah i've sprained i sprained that right ankle actually a lot of the time so i lucked out by losing that one but uh yeah it's that instantly you know like okay that's not right i need to do something to fix that instantly and uh you know i've taken enough cls courses and whatnot to know that if you bleed if you're bleeding out from ephemeral you don't got long and uh right you've got to do something to get it pretty quick and so and that's your leg so is your gunner experiencing the same thing at that point we thought so we thought she had a pretty deep cut her inside thigh and so uh -huh. that was screaming femoral to me and uh 
I felt good enough to move. And so that's when after I freed it, I noticed that it was like, okay, I got to get out and somehow get to the tourniquets, which are on top of the tank. So I tried going out through my hatches. There was trees in the way. I couldn't do that. But the turret had slid far enough forward that I hopped out the bottom of it and started moving towards the back of the tank where I could climb up and get towards the tourniquets. And about halfway back there, I started getting really lightheaded and, you know, heart's racing. I'm bleeding a lot already. And I was losing it just way too fast. And uh, that's what I told her, you know, I'm not going to be able to get to it. We need to do something else. And she threw out the idea, just, hey, take off your belt and use that. And managed to get that on there tight enough that I was able to stop the bleeding and started to run up, run a few shock procedures through, just start to kick my legs up because I knew I'd already lost quite a bit. I felt super cold. I remember that being an instant one. It was just really, really cold instantaneously. And uh, just did what I could to kind of keep conscious, I guess. I was splashing water from the creek on my face and talking to them and, you know, screaming in pain and whatnot, but managed to stay awake through most of it. Wow. Your heart's beating probably about three times faster than its normal speed. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> blood's pumping, but as it's going out of that artery, it's you know going three times as fast. And you're like, you know what? If I just wiggle out of this tank that's offset from its turret, one-legged and get on top of here and get a, <laughs> and get a tourniquet. I mean, just that entire stream of events is amazing. You know, looking back now, it's always one of those things like, I don't know how on earth I kept that presence of mind. I think it was, I think I just got really lucky, to be honest, that I'm not squeamish around blood or anything. And it was just, it turned into, it just completely like flight or flight. Right. And, and there's a lot to be said about that. The chemical mix that happens in that same response that you're talking about, fight or flight, is so overpowering that you are able to take in and process information at a, at a rate that's, that's much faster, but with fewer resources. So at this point, your body's losing blood, and then you're obviously having a physical response to that. Thankfully, it was such a physical response that you knew, this isn't right, I need to change my response. Right. I need to change my course of action to, to meet my immediate need. Well, yeah, and it's a, I think it was like an amalgamation of all three of us too, you know, whereas I, I pretty quickly immediately snapped to, I needed to take action. What I wasn't doing good at though was prioritizing. So my first thought was get tourniquets. It was like, wait, dummy, just use a belt, do something else where that's where my sergeant who was a little more calm at that point in time, but she couldn't move. So she was kind of talking me down and giving me other ideas. And, you know, I was definitely firing on all cylinders and she was just kind of a little bit more relaxed and kind of kept me in check through all of that. And you know, driver was doing everything he could from down where he was. He was just working on getting himself out. He was stuck down where he was too. Right. I guess if the turret slid forward, it probably would have pinned him down into a tighter spot. Correct. He was he was trapped down there. I mean, he wasn't like you know wedged. Like he didn't get anything stuck. Thank gosh. Or he didn't. You know, the, the one you always worry about with that is your head's so close to the top of that thing that you yeah. can snap a neck instantly. Yeah. And thank goodness that guy works out like crazy because <laughs> that was that was a scary wreck from his position. Oh, certainly. Okay, you get your belt fashioned around your leg. So you have a, a hasty tourniquet on yourself. What from there? Uh, like I said, try to run sock procedures as much as possible um, without getting too gruesome. I was trying to elevate the leg in whichever way I could, just grab onto what was left. That was a big problem with it, though. It was really high. I was, I'm, I'm Now I'm only sitting maybe at a few inches below my pelvis or like an inch below my pelvis. But at the time, there was a little bit more and, you know, it was a nice clean cut. It, the stop and the bleeding was the big one. I, I just, I knew I needed to stop that. That's what was going to kill me. Right. At that point, the adrenaline's pumping so hard that pain's almost irrelevant. Yeah. Where where was the detachment? What location at the leg? I'm going to say at that point in time, it was probably about five or six inches below is where the femur was. And the muscle and whatnot, again, it wasn't cut. It was kind of more like my, my leg got grabbed and pulled. 
And so I had a really bad cut on my groin as well, where it was trying to take the rest of it off at the hip and a few other things like that. Right. So it's, it's what you think it's about five inches from where the pelvis is. Is that, is that what you're saying? From where the pelvis starts. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm only wow. about maybe an inch away from there now with all the, you know, revisions they had to do. Wow. So you have a, I mean, that's, that's not much space and you considering that your femoral is, is somewhat elastic. And so it can, it can come back up into the pelvis pretty quickly. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, uh, the first thing I tried, obviously it's the foolish thing I always tell people, if you've got a hose that's blasting full blast, you try to plug it. And it was like, I tried doing that and there's like, there's no way. Yeah. And so the belt, it, it worked pretty well. I mean, I was having to readjust it pretty often and that's what kept worrying me is like every time I'd feel it slip, you know, it's like, I got to get it back on pretty quickly. Yeah. And, uh, all this time though, my gunner was working on freeing herself and she came out to come check on me and make sure I was good. And by the time she got out there, I'd already got it pretty secured and was talking to her and she was trying to figure out the radios and whatnot where she, from where she was. And obviously everything was fried. And that's when we heard like, you know, the best sound I'll ever hear is my phone ringing. And it was like, Oh, thank God. <laughs> There's someone <laughs> looking for us. And, uh, she managed to crawl back up there, grab the phone, tossed it over to me. I was able to kind of just keep the tourniquet on with one hand and hold the belt with my mouth and then text with the other, send a location up to them. Wow. Yeah. And mind you, she's doing all this at the same time with a belt on her leg who's crawling around Every time I hear her part of it, it's like, damn, you're a lot tougher than I was. I was screaming and freaking out the whole time. <laughs> she was just cracking jokes and like, all right, settle down, dude. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, to your credit, she wasn't missing a limb. So No, but she, I mean, we all got jostled up pretty good in that. I think it was just that initial shock. So you start sending out texts. Did you ever find out what the phone call was? Uh, so yeah, it was my, it was, uh, they heard something over the radio when Sergeant Crump was calling and then they looked around and noticed that there was a tank missing and tanks don't sneak off in the middle of the night. They have helicopter engines on them. Yeah, so they're not. very loud. So that's what they they started freaking out. They're like, what's going on? Where are you? And I sent a pin down to him and, you know, talked to my buddies later. I was like, yeah, we saw the trail of destruction. You guys left through the wood line. We followed that down. That's kind of gave you away. <laughs> so she got the radio uh, transmission out. They started looking, they tried to call you and how long did it take them to get there? So we we reckon from start to finish, this whole thing was about 30 minutes worth, maybe, maybe less. When I looked at the timestamps from those texts I sent out from when they texted me, it was about 20-something minutes. And uh, they found us about maybe five, 10 minutes after that, after I sent the pin up. I mean, you know, they move as fast as they can down that hill to come find us. Yeah, of course. And uh, I would say that's probably about the scariest moment from that was just the waiting. It was like, do you think they're going to find us? Like, we're going to die down here kind of thing. But once they did, I mean, it was just pure elation, you know? We were... I mean, it sucked when they had to do the actual tourniquet on me. That one hurt. But, you know, it was just so good to see other faces and know that we were going to be all right. No, I can only imagine. That's a massive feeling of relief, especially considering once you know people know where you are, the anxiety of, you know, you can be treated at that point. That's the amazing thing. Army medicine and army trauma treatment at this point is so good that I think once you know that somebody's with you, um, you can you, and, and, and you're alive at that point. You can probably feel pretty good about about your situation. Oh, yeah. They've started pushing it a lot. So, I mean, just to know the fact that everybody to your left and right has the ability to save your life if need be, it's definitely a lot more comforting than, than anything else, I guess. Plus, we had some good medics. I still have my medics a bottle of, I think it's a bottle of scotch that I owed them. <laughs> I've told them that one. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine this, that's true. Okay, so they find you, you know, you start getting treatment and you get that excruciating actual tourniquet application. Oh, yeah. And then, then they've got to start moving you to level one. Mm -hmm. 
So what they did from there is they did Flight for Life. They had some Polish medics start show us, uh, Slovakian medics start showing up down the hill with us. They strapped us to some litters and gurneys and whatnot to start getting us back up the hill, which, you know, hindsight 2020, it was probably a little dangerous because that hill was scary steep. And uh, I remember one of my buddies, like I, I was sitting there underneath the trauma blanket freezing, right? At this point, I was pretty conscious though. And I was just in a good mood just to see him. And they're dragging me up the hill. They're still panicking and he slips and almost loses his grip. And I just like turn to him. And I'm like, don't you dare drop me. And like everybody on the litter starts like cracking up. It's like, I'm just smiling, this big grin at him. And he's like, all right, man, I got you. Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Before we go any further, so you got littered up a hill mm -hmm. to get extracted, right? Correct. Everyone, every ranger student that I ever taught, hear that and know that it actually happens and it's real. Mm -hmm. it, it was, I just remember looking at that when I was so interested in joining rangers, like, God, that looks miserable. I never want to do that. I had to do it a few times for training and stuff. And then to actually be part of it, it's like, oh, wow, look at that. <laughs> well, no. So, you know, I, I was a company commander for a ranger training company up in uh, Dahlonega, up in the mountain phase. And that was right. a, <laughs> that was a big part of the misery that we gave ranger students was hauling litters up hills. So. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that and water cans. And hey, man, it's all good training. It works out in the end, right? <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Um, and you always pick the biggest kid in the platoon. Oh. Exactly. I'd never been on the litter once before. I, I'd done the Skedco's, the one with the, the... I've been strapped into those before, but I never got to go on the litter. I was light. I was 6'2", but I was only like 170 pounds. And, oh, you know, beam pole. Yeah, some of those tankers get big. <laughs> so yeah. we had, the litters were always fun with the tank guys. The Cap Scouts were fine, but uh, the tankers, man. <laughs> So you said it. I, I'm the infantry infantryman, and you you're the one who said the tankers got big. So I can't be implicated. <laughs> oh no, it's 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 complete truth, man. We spend it, it's for good reason. We spend weeks and months on our tanks at a time. It, it's a, and not to mention, you know, the job alone. You're throwing seventy five pound rounds around and whatnot. No, certainly. Well, let's push on with what we were talking about. So that happens, and you know, obviously, you go kind of through the levels of medical treatment. So. We did, so I did the Slovakian hospital for a few days to get stabilized. Mm -hmm. I did a flight out to Landstuhl, got a few more surgeries and care there. I had a, I had a really nasty infection. So that's what, that's what they were talking about was going to kill me is, uh, you know, my vitals were off the charts. I, of course I felt fine. I was, I was drugged up and I was chatting with people. I don't yeah. ever take pictures, but I remember I had selfies all over the place yeah. on my phone after oh, that. <laughs> but, uh, they probably had you, had you pumped up. You were feeling right. Oh yeah, I was starting to see shadow people. It was, <laughs> it was, it was rough. But uh, yeah, you know, once uh, once we got back here and they actually identified what the infection was, my recovery was just almost instantaneous. It was, you know, with the infection, it was scary. Um, they, I've, I've, you know, I've had docs tell me like, yeah, it was scary how close you were getting there. You know, it was either that or they take the rest of the leg. And the little bit I have left is like, you won't be able to walk really if we take the rest. So I, I just, I got lucky. I got some. I had an amazing, amazing care team behind me, and you know. Some, from what I've heard, actually, some of the Slovakian government guys actually flew down doctors to come take care of us after our wreck happened. You know, they've got specialists and whatnot that, again, that's their field, and they came down just to take care of us. So we lucked out. We really did. We had some really good people behind us, and we had we had some angels on our shoulders that day. All right. So you get back to – did you go straight to San Antonio? I got to Walter Reed for about all of four hours, and then I spent the rest of the time in San Antonio. Which is where you are now, right? Correct. Awesome. Brook Army Medical Center. Are you part of the Center for the Intrepid right now? or? So what happened at first was I was inpatient at Brook Army Medical Center for about September to October. And then I went to the VA Center, which is like an outpatient. It's another inpatient rehab, but it's a little bit more intensive than, um, you know, in the hospital, there's only so much they can do to you. Yeah. And over there, they can, you know, get you on some serious workouts and stuff again. 
and I was there for about another month. And then the center for the intrepid's the outpatient center. So that's I, I live in a normal barracks again, oh, and okay. uh, I just do my normal daily duties. Are wake up, do formations, whatnot, and then go there and do a lot of appointments. Right. It's it's been a year since the accident. You know, what's this year been like, man? I always tell people with this, and they never believe me. And it's like this. I I fully think this was the best thing that's ever happened to me. You know, it changed my mindset in a way that I, I couldn't believe. And some of the opportunities that have been opened up through this for me have just been amazing. The hardest part's just been, I was a, I was a super active guy before this. You know, I was a rock climber. I played soccer. I went fishing, hiking, swimming like crazy. You name it, I did it kind of thing. And it's just been learning how to reincorporate those into my life. For a while, I couldn't. For the minor stuff, it's not even the leg. The leg's not even what holds me back for the most part. It was like I had a, a tear in my shoulder, so I couldn't use crutches. Or I had that broken ankle, so I couldn't really walk on it for a while. It was the little ones. It wasn't the leg didn't stop me that much at all. But at this point now, I'm kind of almost back into the full swing of things. It feels. I mean, I've been rock climbing again. I've been kayaking. I did mountain biking. I'm part of an amputee soccer team now. I'm everything you can imagine. There's so much support down here to get back to everything that you used to do. And I'm definitely the type that's just come on, give it to me. What else you can? What else can you throw at me? So I don't know. It's a super healthy environment. I I, I love everything about it down here. That's awesome. That's a, a positive environment. That's amazing. You've been through a truly life-altering experience and your mindset coming through it has been, this is not going to stop me from what I want to go do. It may slow me down a little bit, but... <laughs> That's what I keep joking with people is this. I, it was unfair for everybody else, so they had to make it even. They had to even up the playing field. <laughs> <laughs> My God, you're awesome. I appreciate it, man. So what, right now you're going through a med board? No, not yet. Okay. I'm still probably going to be on active for about another year is what they think. Okay. So with the surgery I'm getting, there's a lot of there's a lot of things they have to do beforehand to get me ready for it. So I'm not getting a typical socket. I have a typical one, but um, they're going to make me kind of one of the new pioneer guys down here for the system called osseo integration, mm -hmm. where they drill out the remaining part of my femur and they put in, it's almost kind of like drywall anchors and screws, if you could imagine it that way. And so here in a couple months, they're going to get ready to do that first stage, which is the anchor that you put into the drywall. And then once that heals up, my bone fuses to it, they're going to have a permanent post that sticks out of my leg. So rather than this big complicated socket and straps and everything, because I'm so short, I'll just be able to click on my leg and then just walk off, walk, start walking. That's about it. Wow. So it'll basically give you the remainder of well, almost complete leg. Exactly. Yeah. It's like they're rebuilding the skeleton pretty much. That you can click in and click out of? Exactly. Wow. Yeah. So I can throw on a leg to go swimming with it. I can throw on my walking leg. I can throw on a different leg if I feel like I need to, you know, if I want one with a mechanical knee versus an electric knee. And it's all just as simple as a click versus where my socket, I mean, it's great, but it still takes me, you know, 20 minutes sometimes to get on. Right. Is there any follow-up, you know, typically amputees, you know, with different types of apparatuses you can have, you might have to come back in a few years and get certain things shaved down or, or, or whatever. Is there any part? That's where I really lucked out with this place is uh, during the surge and uh, they were getting a lot of burn and amputee guys down here. And so they got a lot of private funding. And so now anybody that's an amputee that comes through this program actually has unlimited free prosthetics as long as it fits their medical needs. Like, you know, if I'm going to get a running leg for something, they need to make sure I'm going to use it kind of thing. But, you know, I'm it, me being the type of guy like, hey, I want a rock climbing leg. I want a leg that can do X, Y, and Z. They're like all for yeah. it. And so I can come back whenever I want pretty much to make adjustments and whatnot, or I can seek care wherever I'm going to be moving to. And no, it's a, it's an amazing program. It's just, 
I, I feel so, so lucky that this is the path that I got stuck yeah. on after this. That's know? awesome. How has this changed what you want to do? Like what, or has it changed or, or how has it, has it inspired you with where you want to go in life? I'm probably about the most indecisive person you'll ever meet. <laughs> you don't, and, uh, <laughs> you, seriously, you don't sound like it. I used to be, we'll put it that way. And so, you know, I had the West Point option. I was about to make E5. It's like, I don't know. I feel like I want to do this. Kind of want to get out. Kind of want to stay in. This was just kind of like that slap in the face that I needed. Like, no, this is your path. Go figure it out from here. And I think it was definitely that kind of wake up call that I needed to start getting back on the, get on a track that I'm happy with, you know? And uh, I, I feel like this has definitely allowed me to do some things that I never would have otherwise. I get to go to, I get the chance to go to school now. I get the chance to kind of be more of a positive influence than I feel like I would have done just being where I was in the military. Right. So wh- how do you want to use it? Where do you want to go? What do you want to influence? So I have been a science and math nerd since I was a little kid and I always wanted to be some sort of engineer because I wanted to do science and make money at the same time. And uh as I've been here now, though, I'm realizing how much fun it'd be to be a guy that makes prosthetics to a prosthetist. It's right up the alley of what I wanted to study anyways. And I was probably going to talk to talking about doing an internship with uh, some of the prosthetic designers here. And we'll see. That might be something I end up pursuing here in the future. Was there anybody that's inspired you specifically you want to give a shout out to? Or? Oh, yeah. Phil Harrison, my prosthetist. He definitely is one of those guys that instantly showed me that this is something I'd be interested Very in. Very cool. And he's only made one prosthetic for me thus far and that's just because i'm slow at healing <laughs> i'm sure he's ready to probably throw about 15 at me and <laughs> yeah oh well, i mean it's, it's it's the cutting edge down there and, and I'll, i think that's something that people may not understand there's been more advances in prosthetics made in the last 15 years than yep. almost any other point in history just based on oh yeah completely. what's come out of brook army medical center and the center for the intrepid and the folks that have been wounded and in the war on terror and and it's, just, it's been it's been an amazing medical advancement. Uh, that's a, that's another thing about this surgery that excites me a lot. Nobody ever gets better until somebody takes that first step. And for guys like me, you know, a lot of above knee guys never, especially like my case, they never learn to walk again. Right. They spend their life in the wheelchair or on crutches, and you know it's great. But for a lot of people, they just want to get. You know, it makes it comfortable again to walk. You don't have this ridiculous system of straps and whatnot just to keep it on your leg long enough to take a few steps. This could really be the surgery that gives people like myself their lives back. If it works for me and it could make that difference for everybody else, I think that would mean more to me than anything else about this entire process. Yeah, Knowing that some kid out there that got in a car crash when he was seven years old and he got told he'll never walk again, all of a sudden gets to try this surgery and gets that back would be like the most amazing thing to hear. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this interview. You've been incredible to talk to, and I know you have a bright future ahead of you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate I appreciate this, man, really. It's been fun. No, thank you. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to the show. If you liked it, please share it with family and friends, and please consider leaving a rating, or even better, a review. It really does help. The plan is to release an episode every two weeks. If you want to be notified, go ahead and subscribe to this show wherever you listen to your podcasts. In the meantime, if you'd like to connect with the podcast, you can visit the website at nstiwpodcast.com. Follow on Twitter at nstiwpodcast1 or on Instagram or Facebook at nstiwpodcast where you will receive additional notifications as well as additional content. If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to see it continue to dive into bigger and better stories, consider donating. It's easy. Navigate to the website and you can easily donate over PayPal. On a final note, 
If you or someone you know has a story worth telling, please submit a summary via a contact form on the website for consideration. Thank you, and again, get out there and do something worth telling about.